0: Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The intersection of mega sports fans and esports is the Madden gaming community. This is a group of diehards who play Madden because of a love of the game and the people they are playing against, and not necessarily in that order. But what happens when this community also turns into the intersection of despair and anger for a deeply troubled man trying to find his way? How do we respond when yet another safe space becomes yet another crime scene? Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Dave Fleming as we talk about how a mental detonation is often the result of a fuse lit long ago. Now we present Sunday in Jacksonville by David Fleming.
1: The Madden Tournament Shooting in Jacksonville. An Inside Look at What Happened by David Fleming with special reporting by Jacob Wolf. David Katz had a blank, chilling countenance, a vacant stare his own father once described in court as looking right through you. To his fellow competitors, it seemed out of place in Jacksonville, Florida on the weekend of August 25th through the 26th during the first Madden NFL 19 eSports tournament of the season. The latest version of the iconic game had been out only a few weeks when the small, tight-knit group of elite pro Madden players, a brotherhood, they called themselves, reunited at the Jacksonville Landing open-air mall downtown. Inside a small, noisy game room in the back of Chicago Pizza and Sports Grill, they laughed, drank, talked trash, and battled for $5,000 and a coveted spot at the Madden Classic in Las Vegas this fall. But when a fellow gamer tried to engage Katz in small talk on the first day, Saturday, by asking what upcoming Madden events he was looking forward to, Katz cut him off. Don't worry about it, he snapped, turning away. During the past few years, playing as bread, Katz, 24, had started to make a name for himself in Madden circles, both for his gameplay and his odd behavior. After driving 11 hours from Baltimore with little more than the clothes on his back and, unbeknownst to his competitors, a small cachet of handguns, Katz appeared at the tournament wearing mirrored sunglasses, a purple Ravens backpack, and a blue and gray plaid shirt. He would wear the same thing on the tourney's second day. Madden might be an iconic brand, with 130 million games sold but the setting in Jacksonville summed up its minor league status in the otherwise burgeoning billion-dollar esports industry. At a recent Dota 2 competition, for example, the winning team pocketed more than $11 million in a single week. In Jacksonville, at the pizza joint hosting the tournament, there weren't even enough gamer chairs to go around. On the opening day of competition, Cats won twice during pool play and lost once to Dennis Evilkin Alston, a Madden pro from New Jersey. Afterward, when Alston offered his hand, Katz didn't reciprocate. He just glowered at Alston with that cold stare. The next day, playing in the single elimination tournament under the name Satiric Bulb, Katz tied up his game in the second half and then recovered the ball after a surprise onside kick. His opponent, Reginald Boogs-Brown, calmly paused the game, expecting the play to be overturned by a tournament official because he thought pro players had to be trailing in the second half to use an onside kick. The rule, though, had recently been changed. Katz retained possession. Good stuff, Brown responded with a laid-back nod, acknowledging Katz for exploiting the rule change. Katz said nothing. He was unable to do anything with the extra opportunity. Eventually, Brown punched in the winning touchdown to advance, and the game ended without incident. But whether it happened days, weeks, or months before, or in that very moment, something inside Katz snapped. It wasn't much longer than five to ten minutes, Brown says, before the first shots were fired. In the middle of the night, with his Xbox controllers locked up in his mother's bedroom in Columbia, Maryland, an adolescent David Katz squeezed his hand into a fist, gathered his rage, and punched a hole through the bedroom door. Richard and Elizabeth Katz divorced in 2005, when David was 12 and his brother Brandon was 15. Richard and Elizabeth's legal battle, which went on for a decade, produced hundreds of pages of court records and medical documents that offer a window into David's life leading up to Jacksonville, especially the way his mental health care became an issue between his parents. Richard and Elizabeth, who are cooperating with the FBI, could not be reached for comment. When divorce proceedings began, a therapist described David in court documents as possibly having a psychiatric crisis due to worsening depression that interfered with his eating, sleeping, and willingness to get out of bed. He began taking antidepressant medication, as well as Risperdal, an antipsychotic drug used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Richard challenged his son's diagnosis, and in court accused Elizabeth, a toxicologist at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, of having an obsession with using mental health professionals, and in particular psychiatric drugs, to perform the work that parents should naturally do. He also testified that a psychiatrist recommended David stop taking the drugs and he entered into evidence an in FDA study on the increased suicidal thoughts and actions of people 18 and younger who take certain antidepressants. In a 98 item findings of fact from 2006, the court summed up the situation. There are serious issues regarding the children upon which the parties have fundamental differences of opinion, not the least of which are how to handle the children's mental health needs and educational needs. Both parents are intelligent, well-educated people. It is unfortunate for the children that both parents are so focused on the litigation that the children's needs seem to be taking a back seat. In August 2007, and again in December, David, then 13, spent approximately two weeks in psychiatric care facilities in Towson and Rockville, Maryland, because he was depressed and skipping school, according to an affidavit from Richard. In January 2008, he was taken involuntarily to a therapeutic wilderness school for teens in Utah, court records say that when depressed or agitated he would suffer crying jags, collapse into the fetal position, lock himself in his mom's car, or pound his hands against his head. In a 911 transcript from 2009, Elizabeth tells the operator he's sitting here, wrestling me with the cable cord to the TV. I've had enough with this child. He's been abusive for over two years. The next year, David was failing most of his classes at Hammond High School in Columbia and staying up until 4 a.m. during the week to play video games. Elizabeth and David battled constantly over his Xbox, to the point where an attorney said in the court records, this is not Xbox court. His mom told a Howard County judge, his hair would very often go unwashed for days. When I took his gaming equipment controllers away so he couldn't play at three or four in the morning, I'd get up and find that he was just walking around the house in circles. Just walking around in circles. In a letter dated December twenty second, 2009, written in pencil in clear handwriting on loose-leaf paper, David asked the court to let him live with his father. Dear Judge, it begins, today is my birthday, and I'm turning 16 years old. I live with my mom and have been wanting to live with my dad. My mom is pretty crazy. She's called the police on me about 20 times for pretty much nothing, like coming home a little late or something. She also gets drunk and starts yelling at me and poking me and doesn't leave me alone. She's hit me before and always takes my stuff because she feels like it. I hate her more than anything in the world. Sincerely, David Katz. A lawyer appointed to represent the children's interests had previously recommended that Elizabeth be granted sole custody of David. The court appeared unwilling to override that recommendation because less than four months later, David wrote another letter asking again to live with his dad. Still, David managed to graduate from Hammond High in 2011 and registered at the University of Maryland in 2014, majoring in environmental science and technology. He did not graduate was no longer enrolled by 2018. At some point as a young man, David moved to his father's home in Baltimore's Inner Harbor, where he was living at the time he drove down to Jacksonville. Richard, a NASA engineer, once told the court he thought David was physically strong and mentally does not need drugs. Father and son, he said, shared a love of baseball and would play catch, spend time at a nearby batting cage, and attend Bowie Baysox games together. Through all of his struggles, Katz continued to play video games, and by 2017, he'd put together a run of successful Madden tournaments. In February 2017, he was responsible for what EA Sports described at the time as the most exciting moment in all the 2017 NFL Club Series championships. Playing in the finals of the Buffalo Division, with time running out and the score tied at 20, the seventh-seeded Katz threw a Hail Mary to upset the top-seeded player, Carlos Los Yancey. He won $3,500 and a trip to Los Angeles for the Madden Club Series Championship. In a congratulatory tweet sent out by the Bills, Katz appears gaunt and expressionless. A month later at the championship, a Madden announcer said on air that getting Katz to open up and talk about anything at all was like pulling teeth. The game he excelled at happened to have one of the most social communities in eSports. All the important tournaments are in person. Big, loud, crowded spectacles with face-to-face matches. The sanctuary and respect Madden offers its top players is built on its strong sense of community. And many say that to truly be accepted, a player has to socialize. We rag on each other and we argue all the time, but at the end of the day, I love all those guys, says Madden competitor Tony Vitek Montagnino, 34. When I go to tournaments, I'm very outgoing. It's always, hey, how's your family? How are your kids? Let's go to the bar after and have a drink. By the time the 2018 season opened in Jacksonville, Katz had added to his savant-like grasp of Madden minutia, allowing him a strategic advantage on moves like second-half onside kicks. But his fellow competitors describe his behavior inside Chicago Pizza as detached. Richard Katz and the FBI have not said what, if any, medication David was taking that weekend. Jordan Kandu can da. one of the players Katz beat on the first day, said that Katz had seemed a little on edge and didn't say anything but a few words. Whatever Katz was thinking or feeling, it was locked away. Katz re-entered Chicago Pizza on Sunday afternoon, minutes after his loss, through a single, worn, metal-framed glass door with a 10-foot Mario Brothers portrait on one side and a poster on the other, exclaiming, There are shortcuts to happiness, and dancing is one of them. It was just before 1.30 p.m., he carried 45 caliber and 9 millimeter handguns that police say he purchased legally in Maryland less than a month earlier. Maryland prohibits people with a history of mental illness from purchasing or possessing firearms, but Katz would have had to self-report those issues. He had extra ammunition and an aftermarket laser sight. Around 150 people were in the building, many of them packed into the GLHF Good Luck Have Fun game bar near the restrooms in the back corner of the pizza joint. Police say Katz walked past the hostess stand and through the restaurant into the game room, where it was so crowded, spectators had to turn sideways to move through, and there was little to no security. Katz pointed the red laser sight of his 9 millimeter at the chest of Elijah Trueboy Clayton, playing in the coveted feature game console next to a livestream commentator's booth. Clayton, popular and brash, was one of the most talented players, Wearing a burgundy Adidas hooded sweatshirt and white headphones, a smiling Clayton glanced to his left before refocusing on his game in the Falcon's kickoff. He didn't notice the red laser sight dart erratically across his chest, then disappear. A split second later, it reappeared. This time, it was a steady, solid dot hovering over Clayton's heart. Anyone watching the live stream of the tournament could see it. Cats opened fire hitting Clayton at least twice in the chest. Clayton slumped in his gamer chair, his head contorted to the side. He died moments later. The room became a dizzying pit of terror, panic, smoke, and screaming. The live stream's video feed cut out. Two huge window panes on the back wall cracked into a thousand pieces. On the live stream audio that remained, the screams, moans, and sound of glass, furniture, and bodies shattering mixed with the furious and relentless pop-pop-pop of the gun. For those in the room, it seemed like it would never end. In disbelief, some thought they were hearing balloons bursting. Others thought it was a cap gun. Tony Montagnino hoped it was fireworks. Montagnino, seated with his back to Katz, felt something white-hot pierce his lower back. The force of the bullet spun him around to face the shooter. He recognized Katz's shirt, the one he was wearing all weekend. Katz's face, however, was largely blocked by bursts of smoke from the barrel of the 9mm, as Katz continued to mumble to himself while firing into the crowd of his peers. Oh, what'd he shoot me with? Montagnino yelled before diving to his left for cover, along with several other players behind the overturned plastic announcer's table. Montagnino collected himself enough to realize, if he comes over here to clear out the room, I'm screwed. None of his choices felt right, but he willed himself to his feet and lunged for the back exit door toward the sunlight and the Saint John's river beyond, careful not to slip on the beige tile floor becoming slick with blood. The exit was crowded, with at least four people clawing and trampling one another to escape. Timothy O'Larry Anselmo, twenty five, had been standing over Montagnino's right shoulder near the back door when cats opened fire. One bullet struck him in the chest. Another entered near his wrist and tore through his hand. Trying to get outside, my only chance, Ansalimo says, he was hit yet again in the left hip. He fought his way through the door and stumbled toward the shelter of another restaurant. His middle finger hung off his palm, leaking a trail of blood. Montagnino tried to follow Anselimo out, but people seemed to be stepping over and around something just beyond the exit, on the red brick patio outside. Once Montagnino reached this point, he looked down and froze in his tracks. Taylor Robertson was flat on his back, mouth agape, staring blankly at the sky. Montagnino felt his knees buckle. Not Taylor, he thought. The 27-year-old dad from West Virginia known as Spot Me Please. Not the most soft-spoken and humble guy in Madden. It couldn't be. It was just as chaotic on the patio. People fleeing frantically in all directions. And Montagnino thought cats might actually have come outside. Montagnino shuffled back inside the smoke-filled game room. He pounded on the bathroom door. Two older men cracked the door a sliver and stared at him apologetically. No room. The door shut in his face. At that moment, I gave up, Montagnino says. I gave up and laid down on the ground and I thought, I'm either going to die here or someone's going to help me. Montagnino surrendered himself to the cold, wet tile floor. The sulfurous smell of gunpowder smoke stung his throat and nostrils. The bullets had stopped, and the room had fallen so deathly quiet he could hear Travis Scott stargazing playing on a pair of headphones discarded in the melee. Scanning the floor, he spotted a custom-painted Xbox controller about ten feet past the headphones. The green, cackling face of the Joker stared at him. Along with the words, why so serious? Blinking back his dimming consciousness, Montagnino thought of his wife, Stacy, and their two little girls back in Texas. A competitor nearby let out a scream full of anger and agony. I told y'all that guy was coming back. Several first responders, conducting a training exercise across the street, arrived at 1.36 p.m. and, without protective gear, rushed into the restaurant. Cats had already backed into the archway leading to the restaurant. Two were dead, eleven were wounded. He put the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Inside the game room, no one knew this yet. Where'd he go? They screamed over and over. Where'd he go? At dusk, three days after the shooting, there were tiny wooden cross necklaces tied to the front door of Chicago Pizza and biohazard orange tape tied to the back. At 7 p.m., the string lights that decorate the patio behind the game room, some of them tiny R2-D2s, flickered back to life automatically. At the restaurant next door, a family with two giggling toddlers enjoyed a taco dinner, their table only feet from dried bloodstains. The first lawsuit against EA Sports and Chicago Pizza for negligence had already been filed by a survivor who was shot twice. The sheriff told the media that as bad as the shooting was, it could have been much worse. The Jacksonville Fire Marshal posted an orange cease-and-desist notice on the front door of the restaurant, declaring that the game room had never been properly permitted, in part due to the obstructed exit. These small, maddened locals had been one of the last places in sports, virtual or otherwise, where talented, anonymous players could still go straight from their den to the big time in one weekend. Already, the charm of these events felt like ancient history. Encelimo. A salaried member of the Milwaukee Bucks gaming team was still at University Hospital in Jacksonville, scheduled for two surgeries to repair his hand. Too dangerous to extract, the bullet in his chest remained. From his hospital bed, he tweeted about the hero who saved his life, the Hooters cook, who got him to safety, triaged his hand and bear-hugged him to keep pressure on the wounds until his own shirt was so soaked in Anselimo’s blood that the police took it as evidence. Shay Young Kiv Kivlin, 21, who had been close friends with both Clayton and Robertson, wondered in horror if he had narrowly escaped. He had gone back to his hotel just before the shooting to take a nap. Katz had been heard asking the EA rep where Kivlin had gone and when he might return. The reigning Madden NFL 18 Bowl champ had turned on the tournament's Twitch stream and heard, along with everyone else who had tuned in, the gunshots and screams. Montagnino was using Madden and a twisted sense of humor to recover as best he could. Online trolls accused him of being a crisis actor, which didn't help matters. A bartender in Texas, he asked paramedics to stop when he was wheeled out of the restaurant on a stretcher. Told them I still needed to close my tab, he says. Physically, getting shot sucks and it hurts, but the mental aspect of it is 100 times worse. Was I a coward for looking out for myself? I still hear the screams, the noises, I smell the smoke from the gun. Everything about it runs through my head as soon as I lay down. In the aftermath of the rampage, one detail in particular still puzzled many of the survivors. At first, the idea that Katz was mumbling incoherently during the shooting was somehow reassuring. It suggested to them that he was unhinged, a crazed lunatic. But the reality of what may have been behind that cold, distant stare felt far more chilling. Two uninjured witnesses who were within feet of Katz during the shooting said he wasn't babbling at all. They said he was counting to himself, almost under his breath, methodically keeping track of how many shots were fired. The prevailing theory is that Katz wanted to be certain he had saved one final bullet for himself.
0: Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Dave Fleming. Dave, thank you for the time.
2: My pleasure, as always.
0: It's... um. This story was, as always, brilliantly reported by you and your team. And one of the the first thing I got out of all this is so much of this seems to be a mental health question. And it seems that that's something that we will will be talking about for a long time from this.
2: Yeah, we uh, there. There is I think one of the, the most harrowing parts of this story was going through the, there are thousands of pages on, uh, uh, on David Katz's mental state during his parents' contentious divorce.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, we, I had to go back. First of all, I had to read through all of those before I sat down to write. And then we had to continuously go back and dive into those for more details and more background. And every time we did that, it just got sadder and sadder. Um, And, uh, you you know, I I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling uh, empathy for, for, for David Katz and what he went through as a teenager and his whole family. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right that he was somebody who was obviously uh, hurting and hurting for a long time.
0: And right now there's, this a documentary in the HBO like rotation on the app and everything. It's called the dangerous son. And, you know, it's part of this quest to get someone help. And it just seems that the genesis of a lot of these stories, a lot of these involving a gun eventually, is it's amazing how tragic the path is for one or two, for for any parent trying to figure this out, let alone two parents, in this case, colliding on what should be done.
2: Yeah, and it's uh you know I have I have two teenagers in my house right now and so I I I I understand um what it can be like dealing with somebody like that mm-hmm. and um it you just there were just it just seemed like every decision they made um didn't work mm-hmm. and the each parent I don't think it made it any it, it didn't make it any better that each parent had a very distinct Idea of how they should treat his his condition, and that seemed to become part of the divorce proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, Was they they sort of used his mental health and his mental health treatment as a sort of uh, uh, part of the battle, and I think uh, that exacerbated everything.
0: And one of the other things that struck me is uh, when you saw like what David Katz's father would say in some of the documents you were able to go through. Um, and then hearing when you spoke to some of the victims, how some of these like online trolls said you were just a crisis actor. And what struck me about both of those situations at once was in a warped way. I kind of wish I were them. Like I really wish sometimes I could live in a world where I thought mental illness can be a phase and, and there really aren't mass shootings. There's only coverups. So no one's actually really struggling and no one's actually really dead. But it just seems that yeah. it seems like that those two feelings are so overwhelming that they don't realize how much this infects not just this situation, but it's what's going to be the cause of the next several situations.
2: I um I mean I'm still struggling with this. Was a grueling, um, uh, dark and sort of exhausting story to report and to to to, to publish in, I think we had less than two weeks. Mm -hmm. And, um, there I had, I am still sort of struggling with, it's just, there's just, there is no, there is no lighter side of the story. There is no good news to report from the story. Um, it's sort of, uh, it's hard, not, it's just full of hopelessness from, David Katz and his family and his condition and his background and the suffering that he went through, the fact that he was allowed to even get within a hundred miles of a handgun.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what occurred in that room, um, the pain and the, and the the death that he inflicted and then um, trying to listen to the, how much the people who have survived are still suffering mm-hmm. and I think, to a person still crying themselves to sleep every night and struggling with survivor's guilt. And then, yeah, on top of that, um, you know, that that people would immediately then start to troll the survivors online. And then the fact that clearly um, another mass shooting has sort of come and gone and um, has not affected any change whatsoever.
0: I know you had mentioned that while reporting this, you wondered, in your, you know, when you took your notes and everything, you wondered, well, this has happened again. When will it happen again? And then it did happen again.
2: Yeah, I have to say one of the most chilling moments for me while reporting in Jacksonville was uh, we, I immediately went to the site of the shooting and was trying to get a look into the room through the windows, which were blacked out. Mm -hmm. And I realized that uh, because I had gotten so close to the room I realized that I was probably standing very close to where uh, Taylor Robertson passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, you just, you start, to, you start to think about sort of the, the senselessness of that. And, um, and, and that's when I wrote down, I wonder how long in my notebook, I just wrote down a note to myself, uh, you know, how long till the next one happens. And yeah, sure enough, I hadn't even filed this story when the next mass shooting had occurred in, in Cincinnati. So, um, and still nothing changes.
0: It's yeah. And one of the things that also struck me is when one of the parts of your story, when you talked about like one of the lawsuits being filed, and then the restaurant was being told, like, we're being cited for not being equipped or zoned and proper exits or something like that. But it's, the thing that made me, I found tragic about that was like, is that where we are? Like you need to have these kind of eggs. It's not necessarily because like wall of a fire or whatever, but all public places you need to go in thinking that way. Like, okay, where can I get out quickly if someone comes in here and starts shooting? Where it's almost like that's yeah. just casually like, Oh, I do need to think that way.
2: Yeah. And I think maybe that it, there, there, maybe that's a sign that, it's gotten so bad we've started to change our way of thinking and maybe that will begin to, to, to shift the conversation. But the, the players that I talked to who survived the shooting, it was like, well, they were like, well, so what does this mean? Do we, do we have to have metal detectors now if mm-hmm. five or more people get together or uh, are these, can we just not hold these kind of events anymore? Um, and it's, it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we're at now. I mean, there have been so many. I think this was the 245th mass shooting just in 2018. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's gotten to the point now where you you cannot hold an event like this um, without worrying about how do I escape or how do I protect myself. I mean, that's uh, if we're not going to do the other work. Where, you know, when it comes to sort of discussing gun control or discussing mental health, Mm -hmm. then yeah, then we're going to turn our society into a place where if four people get together, um, they each have to sort of uh, go through a metal detector.
0: Right. Where where the opposite opposing argument is, well, no, how about this? How about all four people have guns? Like, no, that's actually not the answer. Yeah, I don't think so. And it seems that, but to your point, it seems exactly... That when you think of the status of these tournaments in the future, if they go on, they'll need to be full security and metal detectors, which for anyone who is connected to this community, that's a huge constant remember when. I mean, now, I know that what we now do at um, the airports has sort of become sort of common and phased out. Like, you know, you don't think of it as much as you used to. Like I remember back... I'm not super old, but I remember when I used to be able to, if I had like a relative I was dropping off, I could literally just, oh, I don't have a ticket. I'm just going to go. Through, I'll go through the mail detector, though. They let you walk all the way down if you wanted to. All that has sort of gone back to now, like, no, nobody beyond this point and all that. But it seems that with the security they're going to need to add, it's going to be every tournament will then be a reminder of what happened instead of really moving on.
2: Yeah, and I didn't, you know, as somebody who's sort of new to esports, I didn't understand that 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 Madden, despite the, you know how wildly popular and iconic the brand is and the game is, mm-hmm. from an esports perspective, it's kind of a sort of a it's really a sort of small, tight knit group. It's 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 kind of um, it's it's minor ish and mm-hmm. it's um there's sort of like this there is sort of this sort of throwback kind of like small time um aspect and feeling to these tournaments where you know any kid any teenager who could sort of attend this they're called locals like the one in Jacksonville um you know could could become world famous in in 2 days if he wins this tournament and gets a spot in the 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 Madden championship and and right away that's what people were also mourning about this mm-hmm. in the aftermath is that 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 part of esports and that part of sports in general and that part of Madden is probably gone forever i mean they they realize they 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 the thing that's really cool about these sort of small time locals mm-hmm. is also what makes them very vulnerable to something like this, and so um you know, it's just one more thing that we've had that we will sacrifice because um, because of the bigger issues that we we aren't brave or smart enough to to uh, to change.
0: Now, in this story, you know, it seems that a, a lot of it gets talked about for what it was—a mass shooting—and I feel what I you know I read in your story, but I didn't feel I read in a lot of others was. Those who were shot, I feel that they were uh, either injured or killed, were a little bit forgotten. I mean, what? I mean, and this seems like a close knit community. What did you learn about the the Madden community through this?
2: Yeah, I think um, I was struck by how immediately um, just about everybody who survived turned back to Madden to sort of cope mm-hmm. with, you know, a lot of these guys just couldn't in the, in the, the days right after the shooting, which is when we talked to everybody um, it was so still fresh in their minds that they, they couldn't sit still or even lay down or else, you know, it would being in that room would, it would run on a loop through their heads and they, they, they just had to get away from it. And a lot of them, I was struck by the fact that a lot of them would, they, they, they turned immediately to Madden and -hmm. they turned to each other, you know, they got back online they started playing and they started talking and, um, yeah, you realize what a, what a sort of, what a close knit group this is, how they're all sort of reaching out to help each other. I guess if there's a, there is a uh, ray of light in this story, it was, it was how sort of the the, the Madden community is, has come together to to help each other through this event. And so I hope that they do eventually, um, they don't cancel the entire season that they sort of, that they, they persevere and they, they move on with it because I think a lot of these guys are are hoping to sort of, um, it'll be a big step for them to kind of get back in a room together and play this game again.
0: Right, because it seems that it was, I mean, it was something where, you know, you take a game where one side of it, I've been able to, like when I've been able to play a game like Madden or like a, a Call of Duty game, it's been able to reconnect and almost be in the same room with friends who have, I no longer live with. But in the same time, it seems that this game actually tried to bring people to the same, to one place. And it's like, part of the tragedy is going back to that world where, you know, no, like they don't, as you mentioned, like, how are your kids? Let's grab a drink afterwards. It's more like two little squares in the corner of a, of a screen again, just because we don't know if we can protect you.
2: Right. And, um, I I think an interesting part of this story too is how I mean I really think we didn't really touch on this in the story but I really think that the you know Matt, the Madden community is probably the most social of of all the video game esports communities mm-hmm. and in a weird way I think that was w- what partly tortured David Katz is that he realized you know one of the things I think that he really struggled with was was interaction, human mm. interaction, social interaction. And I, if I had to throw a theory out there, it would be that this game that he loved, he knew to get to a certain level, he would have to engage in the thing that, he, that tormented him the most. And I think those two conflicting aspects of, of Madden um, really tortured him and really, uh, I think, were, were a factor in, in what eventually happened.
0: Or also, a little bit similar, but the same side of that, the fact that he knew that there was sort of, I mean, with all the therapies and drugs he had taken, he knew there was something sort of wrong with him. And he was old enough to be aware of that. And he would probably watch these guys and wish, like, why can't I just come here and be able to just get along with everybody? And, you know, have, you know, it's almost like he seemed like his his cold, don't worry about it, I'm not going to shake your hand, part of that being... Like, I'm going to control not talking to you because I don't know how to talk to you.
2: Yeah. And I think to a certain extent, I wonder if he even one of the things that originally drew him to video games or to Madden was Mm -hmm. that it was a way for him to be a part of a community, but without having to socially interact with anybody. You can just do it online. You can, uh, you know, you can sort of you can uh message through the Xbox. It's it and I think what he realized was it was two conflicting parts of his life. Is that he you know, he loved Madden, he was very good at it. It was part of his identity. But at the same time, to get to a level that he wanted to get to, um, he had to sort of go to these tournaments and and, and interact. And um I think I I I don't think it's it's speculating too much or stretching too much to, to, to say that he really struggled with that, uh, with that part of the game.
0: And and also in your reporting, when it seems that, you know, through these, what you saw in the court documents, um, it, you know, it, it chronicled like the painful, painful uh, path that the parents took to try to figure out what's going on. You know, the mother thinking one way, the father thinking another is one thing, but there seems to be, and like you mentioned, like the like the the note that um, David Katz in sixteen wrote, I want to live with my father. My mother is this, this, and this—a bunch of disparaging things about her. But in um, some of the calls where she was like, "I don't know what to do anymore," there seems to be a line between advocating and giving up. And I mean, and everyone has a breaking point. It seems that that was part of like this cocktail, if you will, to this to his breaking point in Jacksonville was the fact that there were no solutions. And like, that seems like there's part of the issue here. Isn't just letting him get anywhere near a gun, but having him in a mindset where he's like, that's the answer is a gun. And there being just no solutions for him at all. And that's also, I feel, you know, lost in all of this.
2: Yeah. And I think, um, I think one of the, one of the passages that I wrote that, um, that didn't make the final draft was that first of all you know he's 24 years old mm-hmm. so he's an adult this ultimately is, is his responsibility it's his fault he's the only one to blame mm-hmm. and i think that um you know i think we all just sort of we 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 want to figure out okay who was it you know was what part of his family is is to blame for him for him getting to this point and and i think ultimately it's it's it it's on david because yeah. um you know, I think the mom struggled the, but he was living with the dad when he committed this, 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 these murders. So it's like, I'm sorry. What what I was saying was one of the, one of the parts of the story that that didn't make the final draft was that he, his entire life. One of the things that is clear is that he would blame pretty much anybody else for, for things that were his responsibility. And Mm -hmm. for a long time, you know there were there were passages in a, in in that letter that said um, my mom makes my grades go down and it's kind of <laughs> like this had become a pattern in his life that it was um, everybody else's fault right uh, for for his for his problems instead of instead of his own
0: yeah because it seems that there's like as we grow more accepting of addiction for example being an illness. But then there is also the responsibility angle still with addiction, where like you know, if you don't want to get help yourself, you really can't be helped. So it seems that at the end, do you think that while some like the system or arguing parents, but at the end, would you just argue that the person who failed David Katz was David Katz?
2: I think so. Um, it's probably just not that simple, right? It's mm-hmm. um, you. You can just see a pattern from the age of twelve um, where, uh, you know, he's got severe, what seemed like severe, uh, mental health issues. And, um, you wonder if even in perfect conditions, if, um, you know, he still would have gotten to this point if he had seen the right doctors and taken the right, taken the right medicine and, and gone to the right therapy, you just never know. It, it doesn't look like that was the case, but, um, it, you, it was just clear that he was, that he had suffered a lot and that, um, for one reason or another, but yeah, ultimately his responsibility, he got to the point where he drove with these handguns down from Baltimore, down to Jacksonville to, 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 to kill basically his only peer group that he had ever known.
0: And there was, as you spoke in the end, there was that calculation to show like what kind of responsibility is there of culpability of, of, you know, should he be apprehended for this? Where you mentioned like he was counting what he was doing because he wanted to possibly have, he needed one more bullet for himself.
2: Yeah. And we, again, you know, it's like, it's hard to speculate in print, but it's kind of like um, that made me think, uh that that was part of the intent of this all along mm-hmm. was um to something to to lead up to um his own suicide i guess we'll we'll never know but i i thought um you know learning that when when to hear from people who were saying it seemed like he was mumbling it's and then to you know to i to me that was the most chilling part of this entire story was that that calculation of of counting the bullets or or what seems like to be counting the bullets to make sure he didn't run out to
3: mm-hmm. make sure
2: that he, he had one for himself. Um, yeah. That was one of those sort of stop in your tracks moments during the reporting.
0: Well, sadly it seems that I don't think this is going to be the last one of these kind of stories that we have to report on ESPN.
2: No. And I think it's, um, you know, the, there it's more and more it, 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 becomes connected to sports, right? It mm-hmm. seems like that's when you, when you, you see the sheer numbers of mass shootings, when you research a story like this and that there have been, there's probably been now closer to 250 just in 2018. What you realize is pretty soon everybody is going to know somebody who was affected, um, by a mass shooting like this. And I think for a long time, maybe the sports world uh, hadn't been touched by this, Mm -hmm. but it seems like the last few have, have um, hit on the sports world. And I I think there's just, there's no indication that it's, that, that this is going to slow down or somehow fix itself. I think it's just going to continue to get worse until we deal with
0: it. Well, Dave, we hope to talk to you again soon but not about anything like this. And once again, meticulous, fantastic reporting, and we thank you so much for your time.
2: Uh, it was my pleasure. I appreciate it. And um, I, I did want to mention, I mean, this was really a huge team effort. Um, this was kind of a, an incredible thing to turn around in two weeks. And, I, I you know, Jacob Wolf and Kevin Van Valkenburg and um, Elaine and Paul and Charlotte, um, this was like, this was sort of the mag at its best. Um, and uh, so I, I definitely wanted to point out that it, it wasn't just me. I was part of a big team.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And you said it best. This Often in times like this, it is the mag at its best. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.